0: Hey listeners, I'm Harry Richards and this is the Air Power and International Security Podcast. Today we have Dr Harry Rafau on the show to tell us all about the role of air power during Operation Dynamo, more commonly known as the evacuation from Dunkirk in 1940. Harry is the resident historian at the RAF Museum and did his PhD on this very subject, so is the perfect person to talk to. As I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, After the German army invaded the Netherlands, Belgium and France on the 10th of May 1940, the German army had essentially cut through the resistance and by the 21st of May had trapped the British Expeditionary Force, what was left of the Belgian army and three French armies along the northern coast of France. And so this led to the now famous evacuation from Dunkirk during which 338,000 soldiers were rescued by over 800 craft in only eight days. Obviously, the role of the Merchant Navy and many incredibly selfless individuals sailing their pleasure boats, fishing craft, and whatnot to rescue the trapped soldiers has become the defining image of Dunkirk. Air power also played an important but somewhat forgotten role. So, Harry sat down with my colleague Matthew Powell to tell him all about how both the Royal Air Force and Luftwaffe were used during the operation, the challenges of employing air power in this way. And the effect that it had for both the British and German forces during Operation Dynamo. So stay tuned, this is a great episode.
1: Hi Harry, and thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Today we're going to talk about air operations over Dunkirk and around Operation Dynamo. And one of the things that strikes me about Dunkirk, about the air operations over the beachheads trying to evacuate the personnel of uh, the French and British armies, is that it's not been as widely acknowledged as other air campaigns of the second world war. And I wonder if you had any insights perhaps into why that might be the
2: case. Well, I think there's a, a few reasons why Dunkirk and the air battle is is neglected in comparison to some of the other air operations during the second world war. And one is that we tend to think of Dunkirk as being primarily a naval story, you know, and remarkable success by the Royal Navy to bring off over 330,000 men, um, you know, very improvised operation. And it's truly remarkable in its scope and its nature. And then added on to that, the army's endeavours just getting off out of France, fairly epic. Uh, The reaction when they get home, the myth of the little little boats going over, the citizen soldiers rescuing the army, that's really evocative and it's captured the public memory. And that sort of squeezed the air campaign out of the main limelight. And that's made harder for the RAF, of course, because it wasn't really a victory for them. They took quite heavy losses. And it's followed quite he- you know quite hot on its tail is the Battle of Britain. Just over a month later, you have this enormous success where the RAF defends Britain. And that understandably captures the RAF's narrative for 1940. They don't want to look back to the Battle of France and the evacuation of Dunkirk, which hasn't been a total success. Instead, they're looking at that summer of 1940 and where they essentially become you know, the public darlings by saving Britain.
1: Yeah, I think there's an awful lot in sort of not wanting to remember the Battle of France, not wanting to remember Dunkirk, and then trying to focus on the Battle of Britain because that really is where the uh, RAF shown itself as to what it is actually capable of, despite what it may have achieved. Um, there are certain myths that have emerged at the Battle of France, but also around the RAF and Operation Dynamo, the Dunkirk beachhead. What are some of the biggest myths that have come out of this in terms of the RAF side of things?
2: I mean, it's interesting. When I go and I speak on Dunkirk for, for public lectures, I often have people come up to me beforehand and say, oh, I'm so pleased you're talking about Dunkirk, because nobody remembers that the RAF were there. And that is incredibly frequent. Uh, and in fact, the, the tendency is that people even know almost nothing about Dunkirk. You know, they might know the name, the general scope of it, but they don't have any of the details. Well, they know it and they know that the RAF was there. And they're convinced that the myth of the RAF at Dunkirk is that nobody else knows that they were there. Uh, and so they They alone have remembered that they were there. Uh, but actually, that's not true. Um, there is still some sort of enmity from certain soldiers. Uh, my grandfather came off from Dunkirk. And when I told him that I was studying the Royal Air Force and the Luftwaffe during the evacuation of the Dunkirk, uh, and the BEF. And I said, I'm studying the REF at Dunkirk. And he said, oh, were they there? Uh, very tongue in cheek. You know, I think it shows that there was still quite a, a degree of hostility from the army at that time. But actually, that, that wasn't a myth. You know, I started out my PhD thinking maybe that would be, but actually within about a week and a half, that wasn't a myth. The myth was that everybody was convinced that was the myth. And actually, nobody had looked at how the REF had fought this battle. And they hadn't done it in contrast with the Luftwaffe. Uh, And if you're not looking at both sides side by side, you always get a very skewed view of the campaign. And so for me, that's been the real real myth, actually, that there is a myth of Dunkirk that people believe in, which isn't true. And in doing so, they haven't actually gone away and explored the air operations and how the RAF in particular fought that air battle.
1: Yeah, there's an awful lot we can take from that, I think, in terms of attitudes towards air power, particularly from the British Army's point of view. The often used phrase of the RAF over Dunkirk was the Royal Absent Force. Um, to, to get into the the meat of the operation um, that was conducted by both sides, how prepared do you think um, both the RAF and the Luftwaffe were for the type of operation
2: that they faced? Uh, it's a really good question, actually, Matt, and it's it's slightly challenging because neither side are, are anticipating fighting this battle. You know, the, the evacuation from Dunkirk catches both by surprise. Neither have a fighter force which is well prepared to fight at the distances they are operating at. So both have short-range single-engine fighters. And so just getting out towards Dunkirk, they're at the limits of their effective range, where they can still do combat patrols, but the loiter time is fairly limited. So that's a limitation for both sides. And they weren't prepared for that kind of battle. That's clear. But the Luftwaffe had prepared for attacks on harbours. They had thought about it. They considered it. And they were actually very successful in striking Dunkirk Harbour. They put both the inner and outer harbour out of action quite quickly. And at that point, there was a conviction on both sides that any further evacuations would need to take place over the beaches. And that would immediately limit evacuations to optimistically 100,000 if they were lucky. These are the the numbers which are being reported uh, in diaries at the time. They thought, you know, Churchill was sort of talking about if we're lucky, we will get 100,000 back. And not everybody thought 100,000 was a realistic number. Now, very soon into the evacuation, the Royal Navy starts to make a, a really brilliant and extemporized use of the Dunkirk mole, And because of how successful that was, and of how successful the evacuation ultimately proved to be, there is a, a tendency to, be, uh, to look back retrospectively and assume that it was always destined to be successful. Actually, that's very far from the case. Had the weather been even slightly more difficult with choppy seas, which are the tendency, but at this time of year, that's the sort of weather you would expect, difficult, difficult seas off Dunkirk. At that point, it would have been bouncing the ships into the Dunkirk Mole. Ships like destroyers bouncing into the Dunkirk Mole would be heavily damaged. Or if they weren't, the Mole would be. It's a very frail structure going out into the sea. Um, it's not a, a well built up pier, it's not designed to be used in this way. So actually, it, it was both. Uh, a brilliant improvisation and remarkably fortuitous that it could work in the way that it did. But because it did work that way, they were, very, they were able to use the Dunkirk Mole to lift off large numbers of men very rapidly, particularly onto the destroyers, which could come right up alongside, embark large numbers of troops and head straight back across the channel. And those fast destroyers in particular lift off the bulk of the men who come off of Dunkirk. And that really is exceptional. And it's not something which you could have predicted beforehand. So in a way, the Luftwaffe, whilst not being well set up for this campaign, actually quite quickly achieves what it probably assumed it needed to do to limit the evacuations in their scope. And then we can come on to why they, you know, they failed to, to actually observe that what they assumed wasn't actually what was happening. That's a major failing. Um, their attacks on shipping with their dive bombers, when the weather allowed them to come over, The cloud cover was at the right sort of heights for dive bombers to to operate effectively. They achieved quite substantial success against uh, the Royal Navy shipping and the Allied shipping, which was coming in. Um, So it's a difficult question to answer because neither side is expecting this campaign. But both sides have the possibility of fighting effectively over Dunkirk. And that is true for Fighter Command as well. It's able to use those forward air bases to get within range where they're able to project out air power over Dunkirk. It's not ideal. It's outside of the command structure they'd want, but it is possible. Um, So really, it's a case of trying to improvise in the moment to tackle a campaign which is unexpected, but features aspects which they would have predicted beforehand.
1: Yeah, I think nobody is expecting France to fall as quickly as they do in 1940. And both sides really are trying to adapt to the new conditions that they find themselves in. And that's a challenge, I think, for both sides. But the other thing I found really interesting in what you just said there was the fact that they were actually quite good at targeting shipping. And I think public memory is more suited or more destined towards all the ships make it home. There are no casualties from Luftwaffe air raids. And so perhaps there's some challenges to to that narrative, to that assumption that need to be made.
2: Yes, very much so. Um, The number of ships which are are lost or damaged through air attack is quite substantial. When you just looked at the named ships, those major vessels which are taking part in evacuation and which Success depends on. There are also ships which are lost through uh, through misfortune. I believe the term is. Um, I have to look look through Gardner's History of the Evacuation of Dunkirk. To, I think it's collision or misadventure. Misadventure sounds right, doesn't it? Um, wonderful term. Uh, but actually, if you get into those as well, a lot of those ships are lost because they're having to take evasive maneuvers because of air attacks, and they then ground up onto the shore and they're lost as a result. So actually, the Luftwaffe holds the responsibility for the majority of losses in vessels during Dunkirk. Um, Even those where we ascribe them to other causes, often if you go back and look at the root cause, air attack features quite heavily within them. Um, Now, the Luftwaffe wasn't always effective in making air attacks, particularly its medium bomber force. They didn't like going in at low level and pressing attacks home, particularly when there was enemy opposition or when a large amount of anti-aircraft fire, or even when just minimal anti-aircraft fire was coming up. At that point, they were very reticent about pressing attacks home at low height. The dive bombers, by their nature, much more likely to go in at low level and drop accurately on shipping, and particularly direct hits, of course, but near misses, they cause significant damage onto those ships. Uh, The older types of destroyers are vulnerable to near misses. Their cast iron fittings are are very easily ruptured by the shockwaves, which put them out of action for quite some time. So those attacks do have quite a lot of effect. When the Luftwaffe stays at high altitude, its effect is much more minimal, because at that point, you have to go for a sort of carpet bombing pattern effect. And you need a larger number of aircraft bombing quite accurately. And they rarely have the mass available or the precision to achieve that effect, which is interesting, because then you get into the question about if they keep if they kept on telling their air forces to go low, why is it the pilots didn't want to do that? Um, and you talked about the fact nobody was expecting the fall of France so quickly. And I think you have to assume that A lot of these pilots thought that the war was basically won. And do you want to die at the very end of the war? Now, again, looking back, we know this is a decisive moment. The war continues for many years. But they almost certainly didn't see it that way. Uh, And I think there's an understandable reticent to get low attack. Put yourself at risk when you're exhausted after 20 days continuous operations. The war is essentially won. And, you know, these guys aren't going to evacuate their whole army and can be fighting again five years later this war is done. And so they don't want to do the the real dirty work they have to to see off all of that shipping. And so again and again, we see attacks being pressed at too high a height or being made against ships which lack anti-aircraft fire and aren't the most vulnerable or important to the evacuation.
1: I think perhaps that attitude of the the pilots of the crews that are conducting these operations stems directly from Hermann Göring and his attitude and what he tells Hitler about what's going to happen over Dunkirk, that the Luftwaffe will be able to prevent the evacuation and destroy the Allied forces in a matter of days. What I find interesting about this and going back to what we talked about earlier in terms of how the BEF characterised the RAF at this point as the Royal Absent Force, because they can't see them all the time above their heads. What kind of operations are the RAF conducting over Dunkirk and beyond?
2: Yeah, I think think it's important to say, firstly, the BEF, when it was being polite, probably used the Royal Absent Force. I think there was some more colourful and choice language being used at times uh, during Dunkirk. Uh, in terms of the RAF's operations, they are often at high altitude and so not necessarily easily observable by the ground. But equally, the RAF often chooses to fight too far forward. And there, again, one of us going back to that myths. There's an idea that the, the RAF was fighting well inland. Actually, that wasn't always true. Its patrols were often intercepted shortly after passing Dunkirk, with the Luftwaffe reaching forward. But what did happen is when the RAF broke up formations and the Luftwaffe scattered, the RAF often chased quite far inland, a single aircraft or a small groups, rather than trying to resume any kind of coherent patrol or simply go back, land, refuel, rearm and come back over. And so that lack of clear instructions, this isn't a failure by the pilots. This is a failure of instruction with many pilots being told simply you need to go over to Dunkirk and get a good bag. That isn't what the RAF's job should have been at Dunkirk. They were there to protect the shipping and the evacuations. And I think there was a lack of clear clarity around those instructions to the pilots. So often they were undertaking patrols without that clear focus around, whatever else happens, we need to make sure that these aircraft cannot attack the ships, and we need to be back in position to stop any subsequent wave. Instead, they're thinking, well, here's a great fighter force which we can chase after and get into a dogfight and scrap with. And so they're then absent when the bomber force comes in. Equally, needs to be said, the is fighting a very difficult battle, um, so it's not a case of painting them as being the, the villain of the piece, a really challenging operation for them, but I think we can see there were clear failures in how they approached it.
1: And could this possibly be a legacy from Trenchard in the First World War, that control of the air is something that you fight for over enemy territory, and that's sort of an attitude perhaps that's permeating through senior command, When they're telling their crews to go out and get a good bag to go and take on and try and destroy Luftwaffe forces.
2: Well certainly in the RF's doctrine the idea of protecting a limited area in this way it's pretty counter to it there is scope to doing it for a limited time but it's it's phrased in a very negative way it it would be clear to anyone reading it that this is not the appropriate application of air power you are supposed to go and win the major air battle and in doing so you shift the whole parameters in your favour. And in in a situation like Dunkirk, there needed to be a greater realisation that that wasn't the appropriate approach. And instead, it had to be that limited combat zone with that very small and specific objective of protecting shipping at all costs. And anything after that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you shoot down a fighter, which is already heading out of a combat zone. They are irrelevant to the operation. What is important is that you are over... The combat zones so that Astuka can't press an attack home at low height, because every time the RAF was present, the German bombers did not want to go low because they knew they were so vulnerable. And so that's part of the difficulty that the RAF faces. It does change its combat tactics as well during the battle. So it starts out operating as single squadrons and pairs of squadrons, more, more small-scale formations, greater frequencies over Dunkirk. They achieve quite considerable success. They shoot down large numbers of planes, although the Luftwaffe also achieves its objectives in uh, taking out the Dunkirk Harbour, but the VRAF then changes its approach because it takes such heavy losses in its mind. It's taking losses it doesn't believe it can afford to sustain longer term, which I think is interesting because if we're seeing this as a decisive moment in the battle, it was probably worth sustaining heavy losses to achieve that main objective. But that's not how they see it. They believe they need to reduce their losses and that they will also have more operational effect, they believe, by operating greater formations, larger patrols. And this then intersects into the Battle of Britain debate around the big wing formations. Because Keith Park, when he counters the claim about whether or not four squadron patrols operating will be effective, essentially says, I've tried it at Dunkirk, and it doesn't work. Uh, And in hindsight, he says he would have preferred to continue operating two squadron patrols. And there's a number of reasons for that. But at its basic level, they aren't coordinating and cooperating effectively together in those large numbers, which means that that force effect is being dissipated, and they would have achieved more by operating in smaller numbers at greater frequency. And again, in that very small objective where they didn't have to engage in air-to-air combat, all they needed to do was be present and able to threaten the bombers, because whilst they're doing that, they can't really undertake the types of attack they want to. So lots, of, lots of, sort of strands where small things ended up having a big effect.
1: And there's perhaps a linkage as well to Dowding's letter, um, famous letter that he writes during the Battle of France about not sending more hurricane squadrons over to France in what he perceives as a lost quarter. and Perhaps that's another factor that comes into why they change their tactics and they're not willing to sustain heavy casualties because they feel that this isn't the decisive battle for the RAF. It's coming in the summer months and into the autumn.
2: But there's absolutely that feeling, and you know, Cranwell students would, of course, be well familiar with the, the hurricane tap and the letter that Dowding writes, um, and he was certainly of a belief that the hurricane tap had been turned on and it won't be possible to turn it off until France falls, essentially. Um, but if you look at how he's justifying this case, it's similar to the early belief that the army have about how many troops they're going to get off. Dowding looks at it and thinks, well, if 100,000 troops get off or less... It, it, you know, they're not going to be in a situation where they can protect Britain against a potential invasion. It is going to rest on the RAF. I need to preserve my forces. And if you start from that point, you can understand why he didn't see this as a decisive air battle or a decisive battle in the Second World War. Now, he was very much of the mind that the Battle of Britain would follow hot on the hills of the Battle of France. And it doesn't just uh, shape how he chooses to use his squadrons and the resources he commits. It also affects the equipment that he puts in, so he strips out the very high-frequency radios that Fighter Command has started to be equipped with. Uh, so around 10 squadrons have TR-1133, very high-frequency radio installed. Those are taken out, and they're replaced with TR-9D, high-frequency radio. Uh, and, of course, all of your listeners will be absolutely infused by the technical detail of TR-1133. Uh, it's a much better radio set, greater clarity, greater range, more effectiveness. Uh, and so it allows that coordination to be achieved. By taking it out, and Dowding specifically wrote to the Under-Secretary of State that he was removing it, not because he wanted better coordination between his squadrons, but because he believed that it should be preserved for use in its proper sphere, i.e. it should be retained for use for a battle over Britain, not over France. He took those out and it had an effect on his, on his forces' combat effectiveness, because over France, over, operating over Dunkirk, which the Germans later described as a call sign and wavelength stew. TR-9D was very heavily intercepted by the radio broadcasts which were being put out by all of those different units with their headquarters and their radio sets, um, which effectively produced a jamming effect on the radio sets that Fighter Command was operating. Uh, So it really did limit the amount of coordination that those squadrons could have. There was an argument being made, but by reverting to one type of radio set, you would be able to use all of your squadrons interchangeably. Now, I think that's a pretty weak argument, actually. Firstly, it suggests that Fighter Command didn't possess the kind of administrative coordination where it could pair up a number from 10 squadrons to operate consistently together I, I think that's that's unlikely they could have done of course they could have done it also doesn't work because as squadrons arrive from different groups into 11 groups uh, operational control so as squadrons from 12 group for instance came into 11 group they needed to change their crystals so that they could then operate on the correct frequencies that 11 group squadrons operated on And they often didn't possess those crystals Uh, and I suddenly realized saying this crystals is a horrible word I really dislike it I'm glad they've adapted their radios now so you don't need crystals but I had a a veteran come up to me and he he said I was giving this talk he said I'm really pleased that you mentioned that because post war they were still using crystal sets and they still didn't send us into the right uh, frequency areas with the correct crystals Um, so even when this change had happened Squadrons weren't actually able to effectively communicate with one another, even in ideal conditions. Uh, so, a little bit of a sort of red herring around the sort of reasonings there, and it was driven solely by that desire to preserve equipment for the future Battle of Britain.
1: Yeah, and I, I think something that emerged from from that was the importance of tactical level command and control, the ability to coordinate your forces, to have them being able to communicate. And to understand what each are doing is vital and perhaps is something that gets overlooked. And as you said, in terms of lessons learned that should have been learned and weren't.
2: Well, there has to be the space and the will to reflect on errors and take lessons away from them. Um, and both of those things are often in short supply. You often don't have the time to sit down and go, oh, it didn't work about that. Why did we get this wrong? Uh, and that will aspect, it takes quite a great deal of leadership to sit down and say, well, something went badly wrong, and I know I was a part of it. So what happened? What can we learn from it? And I think it's, it's very easy to forget that when reflection happens, it's a positive, and it's easy to understand why it doesn't happen, because uh, it's, it's quite difficult. There, you need to set, get all of those conditions right before you can really be in a, in a place where you're a, you are a learning force.
1: Absolutely. And you need to be willing to admit that you've made mistakes, but also for commanders to be willing to listen and to accept that mistakes have been made under their leadership. Um, talking about sort of mistakes and failings, what do you think was the biggest failing of the Luftwaffe during the Dunkirk evacuation?
2: Well, I think it's having uh, taken out the Dunkirk harbour, not then having the inter- intelligence set up to observe that the Dunkirk mole was taking off large numbers of troops. Um, And certainly the crews will have seen it at times. uh, The burning oil tanks at Dunkirk heavily obscured the early use of the mole. But crews would have seen ships boring up alongside it. And importantly, the German army was reporting that they were seeing large numbers of troops embarking off it. Um, So the reports were coming back into the Luftwaffe. But when they reached their intelligence centres, the German intelligence officers weren't particularly highly valued. Uh, They were the lesser grade men who were being put into postings which weren't in high esteem. And there wasn't that willingness to, for A, for them to do their job well enough where these lessons were being passed up, and B, that the ability to listen and say, well, this person is telling me that what I believe to be true isn't true, that actually large numbers of men are being embarked, even though I think I've done my job. And so it took several days before the Luftwaffe realised that large numbers of men were coming off in high numbers from one specific place and they needed to go out and attack it. And even then, the aircraft of the Luftwaffe aren't being sent out specifically to bomb the Dunkirk Mole. They're just being told large numbers of men are still coming off. And so often attacks are being made around the beach, which are completely ineffective. And officers write from the Royal Navy afterwards, uh, it may sound terrible, but I see the beaches as being a a precious asset in diverting attention away from the the main area of operations. Um, And so there was a lot of Faulty targeting as well by the Luftwaffe. Uh, and that comes down to bad intelligence briefing beforehand.
1: Yeah, I think perhaps that leads into a major difference that we see with the Luftwaffe and the, here, the German army in terms of identifying what they might know as the Schwerpunkt or the decisive point of operations. And we see in the Battle of France in 1940 that they identify Sedan, they identify the Meuse River as being the key point where the majority of their armoured forces and um, Motorised forces are going to go. Is that something that Luftwaffe really struggle with throughout their history, being able to identify key areas and key moments of operations?
2: I think it's difficult to ascribe the blame solely to the Luftwaffe there, because the German army is also making demands for attacks on any number of different places. Uh, And of course, we're talking about coming from a UK perspective, the Dunkirk evacuation. It's easy to forget that the German army was busy preparing for. The full route, the operations over the Somme uh, and the build up towards there. The Luftwaffe is as much of its focus in terms of movements of aircraft are going towards setting up for that next stage of the operations rather than dealing with an operation, which, again, they believe is sorted. Um, Attacks on artillery within the Dunkirk perimeter. The German Luftwaffe is being called in to undertake attacks on German artillery, which really beggars belief when you think about it, because the German army has plenty of artillery and could be doing counter artillery work of its own until you get into the fact that, again, they're pulling out some heavy artillery units to go towards the French forces on the Somme. They have an artillery issue in terms of supply, so getting enough ammunition up to those uh, guns can be problematic. So instead, they're calling on the Luftwaffe to do jobs that actually they're equipped to do on their own. Um, and it's easy. You know, The, the lesson of, of all armies is that they become addicted on air power. They'll always talk before operations about how it's incidental and subsidiary, But once they get into operations, they're they're like a dope fiend. They can't get enough. Um, And so that's a continuing issue that we see. And so on the Dunkirk perimeter, a lot of attacks are being made by the Luftwaffe, which probably don't need to be being made, but are being called in by the German army. The Luftwaffe is not just choosing to, to bomb the Dunkirk perimeter for no reason.
1: I think you're right in terms of this idea that armies will dismiss air power before operations and then during and after will say how vital it was to their success. So after Dunkirk, how were relations between the RAF and the British Army, particularly at sort of senior command levels?
2: So I think at senior level, there's an understanding, particularly during the Dunkirk evacuation, that the context in which the RAF have been operating. It is, however, very difficult to strip this out from the whole Battle of France, where the Army genuinely believes it's been left without any meaningful air support. Now, the reality, in a way, doesn't matter as much as the perception and that is the perception that they hold. But there's also a realization that they can't have this kind of negative uh, re- relationship between the Army and the Air Force. And Dill writes to his subordinate officers across the Army saying, you should not be engaging in criticism of the Royal Air Force for its operations over Dunkirk. And if your troops are criticizing them, you should be doing something to stop that. Uh, so there is an understanding but actually this has probably gone too far. Um, and there are famous examples during the evacuation of pilots having been shot down and having to to get onto ships with arguments or having to knock out the major who's who's on charge of, sort of gang gangplanks, letting people on. Um, and they capture a lot of the attention. But smaller scale issues, you know, there was a signalsman who's got a great interview. He comes into the uh, Dunkirk perimeter with a massive overcoat on and giant gun boots, all to disguise the fact that he's in an RAF uniform, because he really is terrified about the idea that the army will see that he's RAF And we'll have nothing to do with them. Um, And when we get back into Britain after Dunkirk, uh, again, lots of stories about fights between ground crew and and squaddies. But actually, it's really across the country, this idea that, you know, perhaps the RAF let the army down because there are home guard units in Lincolnshire holding up uh, ground crew going for a night out on a bus because their sons have come back and told them the RAF weren't there and they're furious about it. Um, And so, you know, they're they're insisting at gunpoint that they, you know, they must be saboteurs of the nation. And it's only when officers turn up several hours later and they've already ruined their night out, that they're willing to let them go. Um, But, you know, whilst it's all in a way fairly amusing 80 years later, actually, this was fairly indicative of the time. And it only shifts when the Battle of Britain really launches forward. Uh, But that tension was so pronounced that the reason Churchill spends so much time within his uh, 5th of June address Uh, first to Parliament, then the nation, uh, regarding the the evacuation from Dunkirk. Uh, And people will know the famous line, wars are not won by evacuations. Uh, But inside this deliverance, there was a victory, and it was won by the RAF. And he talks a lot about fighter command, but more, he also talks about bomber command. And it's the seed in many ways for subsequent myths that the RAF then build about themselves. So the Battle of Britain, comes afterwards and, and Churchill was well aware that he needs the RAF being seen in a good light for that future battle, both domestically and internationally. The idea that Britain can stand alone and the RAF can protect Britain, but also he needs Bomber Command to be seen as a viable means of striking back. And so within his speech, you already see that idea that Bomber Command alone can take the war to the enemy because the army as a force is spent for the next four years until it can be rebuilt. It's only when it gets back into uh, France by D-Day that it really starts to have a meaningful effect at a strategic level again. Set aside the North African campaigns because they're relatively small scale, it's only when we go back in by D-Day that the army reappears as a substantial force. And that's largely because for five years, the RAF takes the fight to the enemy.
1: Yeah, I think Churchill shows himself in the summer of 1940 to be the master political communicator. He turns what is undoubtedly a catastrophic defeat for the British Expeditionary Force and its evacuation from Dunkirk, leaving the majority of its equipment on the beach of Dunkirk and in France, into something of a national victory that perhaps we misperceive, we misunderstand today. Um, I think to, sort of to, to just build slightly upon what you said about sort of the relations between the RAF and the army, I, yes there is sort of a degree of acceptance, but certainly the army is pushing up until nineteen forty three in the UK for its own independent air arm, um, to gain control over tactical air power because it feels it's been so wrong in the Battle of France and that with this arm um, it can actually achieve a huge amount. Whether or not that's true or not, I think is not even open to debates so 'cause they're not sure how they're gonna use it. Um to close then, um, I have to say, I read your book, I reviewed it for a journal, and I absolutely loved reading it and sort of it filled that gap really nicely between the Battle of Britain and the Battle of France and something that hasn't had a lot of attention on it. But what would you say were your most significant conclusions or findings from the research?
2: Well, firstly, thank you very much, Matthew. That's that's always lovely to hear. Um, I'll spare you blushing by saying nice things about your book as well. Um, (laughs) But uh, significance, it's always a sort of challenge to sort of Think one of the most significant takeaways from the work that one does, I think there's, there's probably a number. Um, most important is that the Luftwaffe did possess the capabilities to halt daylight evacuations, and that's still quite a contentious point. I had somebody in the Q&A for one of my lectures saying, "Well, it's ridiculous you're suggesting the Luftwaffe could have won." No, I'm, I'm saying the Luftwaffe could have halted daylight evacuations sooner than they did. You then get into a question of whether or not, if the evacuations were taking place solely by night. Could the Luftwaffe have halted them? And were they taking place solely by night, how many troops could have come out? But the idea that they couldn't have halted daylight evacuations earlier, I think, is, is patently false. Uh, and that should reinforce the, the nature of their defeat. It shows that they didn't do well enough. Um, but I think often when you, when you suggest an enemy has a capability that they didn't achieve, it's seen as perhaps putting praise on them. Uh, but that's one of the big takeaways, I think. If you look at how on the 1st of June they do halt evacuations, And on the 29th of May, when they temporarily succeed halting daylight evacuations, there's a clear pattern where effective low-level attacks allow them to halt the evacuation. um, And that could have been achieved sooner. So again, it's about reflecting back about why that didn't happen. Um, But also I think looking at the activities of Bomber and Coastal Command, including the Fleet Air Arm, and we haven't really touched on them here, but they were an important factor. They had a limited, specific, but meaningful effect on the evacuation, which is all too easy to overlook because of those very small effects. But when you're looking at such a small window of time, actually those effects have quite a big outcome. If you delay the movement of troops for 90 minutes during a wider campaign, it's perhaps not significant. But when you delay them within a very small window of time in this kind of battle, actually it can have quite big impacts. Uh, And so there are a number of operations where the RAF, Coastal Command in particular, operating against the e-boats, had quite a pronounced effect on the overall outcome of Dynamo, which I don't think has really been discussed uh, previous to my book, which I think that was, that was one of the ones which was really satisfying to go into. Um, and perhaps just the, the simplest one was that Fighter Command wasn't operating at the disadvantage that people often claim. They were in closer proximity to the battle zone than the Luftwaffe. Um, when they got into combat, they were more often than not returning home early because of a lack of ammunition than they were because of a lack of fuel. Uh, and that's a really simple point, but it's something which has survived for sort of 80 plus years in, in historiography. as the idea that the RAF was, was fighting for further afield and was was consistently running out of petrol before they could, they could make a meaningful difference. And it's, unfortunately, it's just not true.
1: An awful lot of things, I think, to digest there. And hopefully the, the audience will enjoy getting not only into what we've discussed here, but also getting hold of a a copy of your book and getting into the the real depth of the weeds that I thoroughly enjoyed when I read it. Harry, thank you very much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about power during Operation Dynamo.
2: Thank you, Matthew. Likewise.
0: Well, that's it for today. If you like content like this, please do keep your eyes peeled for a future episode that we've got coming out. That will take a closer look at air power over Normandy in 1944. Next week though we have an episode looking at the limitations of AI in war and strategic decision making. So see you then. Goodbye.